0: the following is rated s for spoilers i just don't see things the way he does i don't see how a world that makes such wonderful things could be bad hello and welcome to the popcorn hangover my name is alex and today we'll be discussing 1989's The Little Mermaid, written and directed by Ron Clements and John Musker, based on the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, starring Jody Benson, Christopher Daniel Barnes, Pat Carroll, and Samuel E. Wright, releasing initially on November 13th in 1989 with an estimated budget of $40 million. Now, to date, worldwide, it's made about $211 million in the box office, $111.5 million domestically, Um, but in its initial run, it made $84 million domestically rotten tomatoes gives it a 92% credit score and an 88% audience score IMDB gives it a 7.6 and letterbox gives it a 3.7 out of five I'm flying solo today um, or swimming solo I guess since we're talking about the little mermaid um, going back to the roots of the big Disney blockbuster that is coming out this weekend uh, with uh, with the new remake of, of uh, the little mermaid uh, really excited about this one uh, it was interesting going back to watch this after however many years. I don't know the last time I saw this movie. Um I I'm sure my parents would could probably give me more information on it if I asked, but I I remember my younger sister uh, who's about 5 years younger than me um went through the Disney princess phase and so the little mermaid was always on and I do remember that the little mermaid was of all of the Disney princesses was definitely my favorite um for whatever reason uh, I think it has a lot to do with with the soundtrack I had a uh, I had like a, a CD and it was there there were two there were two discs there is a blue one and a green one and it was just a bunch of like Disney classics or whatever and I remember that a lot of my favorite ones were from the Little Mermaid and so I think that's one of the reasons why I liked the movie so much um, and also we'll talk about it more in the second segment but there's a lot of stuff that I think as a kid I picked up on um, and I I don't don't want to say I picked up on it, but there are a lot of things that I really, really liked about it. And I didn't know why as a kid, because I was like under the age of 10. Um, But now looking back on it, I can kind of see like, Oh, I I see the correlation with why I liked it then. And also why I still like it now. um, And kind of knowing what those reasons are, uh, which we'll talk about next segment. But yeah, the little mermaid, uh, what a, what a, what a film. Uh, Like I said, a little odd going back and watching it. Um, I remember, like, the general premise and everything. Uh, you know, Ariel wants to join the human world and be with this guy, so she goes to a witch to give her voice, she gives her, trades her voice for uh, her freedom to become a human or whatever. Um, I remember that general aspect of it, but going back, there's a lot of... There's a lot of really messed up stuff in this movie um, and a we- lot of weird uh, messages uh, throughout it. I mean, the the whole the whole plot, the big inciting incident is essentially, uh, this teenager who's 16 has a crush and her dad throws a temper tantrum over it. Um, w- super overprotective dad and Triton. and, um, and I do understand, you know, there is an element of, they don't want humans to know that they exist. And, you know, she, she could get hurt. And I, I, I do understand that part, but from a certain perspective, uh, the whole plot, is essentially a dad throwing a temper tantrum over her, his daughter having, um, a crush on a guy, uh, which I thought was interesting uh, and a little funny. Uh, but the other thing, uh, the whole thing of Ursula uh, was really uh, odd to me uh, going back on watching it. You know, some of the, she's basically telling Ariel that like the best way to get a guy is just to not say anything and to stop talking and just to do whatever you're told. Um, definitely. Uh, I, I'm going to say makes sense for the, late 80s early 90s kind of um but nowadays uh that's some messaging that obviously uh we don't want to be giving uh little girls um and boys as well um so i'm curious to see how the remake uh handles some things like that uh because yeah this movie doesn't age well in that regard um but watching it and looking at, you know, the fact that it is 1989. Um, one of the things that's really significant about this movie is it's, it is the first animated film to combine the normal at the, what was at the time, the, the traditional just, uh, hand drawn animation, uh, hand drawing everything. Uh, they did that for most of the movie, but they also for one scene combined a uh, CG animation in it as well. Um, And that's really, really significant because now, I mean, it's the complete opposite. Everything is CG animated. It's, it's cheaper. You can do a lot more with it. Um, and it's really cool how, uh, you know, I always make always, you know, use the phrase like the little engine that could, the the little mermaid that could, um, somehow it, it pulled Disney just out of, out of this big slump. It started the Disney Renaissance. Again, we'll talk about that next segment. Um, but it did, it, it, it was significant in so many ways. Um, and looking at the animation, it looks great. Um, I really, really enjoy um, the older style, the older hand-drawn style. I wish we had more of that. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why Into the Spider-Verse um, and now, you know, Puss in Boots, uh, Last Wish, uh, and things like that are kind of using a more traditional animation style. They're still using CG throughout all of it, um, but it looks more quote-unquote traditional. Um and I really really like that that look um, I don't know I guess I mean Snow White was the first you know film in color and things like that so like there's just a lot of I, I guess you know people love the the cinematic and filmic look and so like you know we're t- intentionally taking these really good and clean and sharp images that we're getting from modern day cameras and we're mudding them up we're putting things in front of them to make it dirty um, look at the Joker uh, that movie was made with a 50 year old Russian lens, uh, that they had to completely tear apart and rehouse to get the, to sit the, and and honestly a bad look, look, but it looks good in the context of the film. If that makes any sense, it's, it's objectively a bad image, but it looks really pretty and interesting. Um, I use pretty lightly, um, in the context of the film, or this is another Batman film, but, uh, Matt Reeves' as The Batman, one of the things that made that film so beautiful, watching the, the one perk, I mean, we've talked about it on the show, but the first time we saw it, we saw it in IMAX in the front row um, and on an early screening, and it was awful. But the one cool thing about it was because we were so close, we could see how dirty the image looked. And when I'm saying dirty, a lot of what I'm referring to is A, imperfections, uh, but B, there's a lot of um, what's called grain. It's the little, uh, I don't know, it's the little fuzzy looking things. And it it's fuzzy slash, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Fuzzy is a word that I'll use, like kind of like static on a screen. Um, but it's just fuzzy stuff. You'll typically find it in like the shadows and really dark sections of the screen. Um, and film grain is something that was, I mean, it was inevitable, um, when it came to shooting on film, uh, but now we're shooting on digital cameras all the time and we're still adding things like grain, um, to the images, uh, whenever I shoot, uh, for things. And I know basically everyone does at this point, they use filters. They buy expensive filters to put in front of their expensive lenses that are attached to their expensive cameras that make the image look bad. And then make the image look like something that you could get off of a camera and some film that now it could get relatively cheap. Um, the whole system is kind of ridiculous. Uh, all I have to say, going back and watching The Little Mermaid, it wasn't, it, it was it, I, that's one of the things I like about watching older films is seeing um, just, I don't know, how, how aesthetically pleasing it all looks and how it's odd how these Im, very imperfect images and things going on um, just look so good and um, look incredible. Uh, one of the things, of course, though that the Little Mermaid is most famous for are is its score and is the music. Um, man, Howard Ashman's lyrics are just incredible. Um, the I don't know. It's lyrics are a weird thing to analyze because as someone I don't know, I'm very familiar with, like theory, music, music theory, and things like that. And so it's it's easy for me to listen to something and say, "Oh, that sounds cool" or whatever, um, and be able to explain why. But when it comes to lyrics, I don't know why. I just know that sometimes lyrics just, I don't know. They're really clever. They give beautiful imagery. Um, and that's what Howard Ashman did with the score and Alan Menken as well with actually writing the music for the songs. Um, that duo is a powerhouse. And again, we'll talk about them a little bit next segment. This first segment's going to be really quick because I'm really excited to get to the second segment, as you can tell. Um, but yeah, uh, the music in, and, and this is, is just brilliant. The, the variety of it all. Um, is incredible. Uh, that's one of the things that I think this movie kind of sparked. I mean, we have, you know, your typical ballad right at the beginning um, with uh, part of your world. And then we go into like a, like a reggae kind of, you know, playing the steel drums sort of like bop immediately afterwards. And then we have like um, an almost like jazzy uh, um, love song. I don't know, just the, this, so much variety and all of them are absolute bangers. Um, they are so good, um, especially Kiss the Girl. I love that song so much. Um, again, I can't explain why. It's just, um, maybe it's in the nostalgia of it all. Um, but yeah, I really, really like, um, really, really like the, the songs in this movie. Talking about actors, one of the things I noticed, um, Jodie Benson, the voice of Ariel, obviously gets top billing uh, as she is. Uh, the main character, but the difference between like her and Hallie Bailey, who is playing uh, Ariel in the live action film uh, is that Hallie Bailey will actually like be on screen and acting in just about every scene. Uh, whereas Tody Benson is only in the movie for like half of the runtime and the runtime and it's, it's only an hour and 20 minutes uh, and that's including some of the credits as well. Like it's a very, very short movie. Um, so I find it interesting that she gets top billing considering the fact that she doesn't work for half of the movie. Um, but I, I will say Samuel E. Wright as Sebastian is the absolute standout in this film. Um, he did a fantastic job, as well as Pat Carroll playing Ursula, uh, the two of them uh, fantastic voice actors. And uh, yeah, it's they, they, they had a lot of fun with their parts, particularly Samuel E. Wright. Uh, I feel like Sebastian is really the main character uh, in this movie, I mentioned earlier how bizarre uh you know some of the themes and messages are, um, and it's interesting to think about the fact that like this is a modern version and a modern take on uh Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, which was even crazier. So essentially, in, in the original fairy tale, she saves this human, um, and kind of falls under his spell. Uh, but in the process she discovers that the souls of humans live on for eternity. Um, so she's not really like interested in humanity. She just wants to live forever. Um, that that's her entire drive. It's not, it's not for love. It's not out of, for curiosity. It's just, I want to live forever. So she goes to switch, um, to get legs so she can marry human and get this ability to become, uh, immortal essentially. Um, and there really is no happy ever after, uh, at the end. Um, because the prince falls in love with another woman So now she's like oh crap I can't live forever If I don't marry this guy um, So And so like if she doesn't Marry him she's screwed Essentially And instead of becoming like A weird like I don't know a, a shriveled up piece of seaweed I guess uh, she's going to become Seafoam um, in the original Version and so she, Her sisters convince her Uh, that she needs to stab the prince um, to break the curse. And then she'll become a mermaid again. Um, By the last moment, she decides to spare him uh, and then throws herself into the sea, uh, ready to like accept her fate um, and joins a metaphorical paradise uh, called the women of the air as a reward for her good deed. So essentially um, her good deed was not committing the bad deed. Um, Yeah. The the whole story is just really uh, bizarre. Um, and, yeah, the Anderson, he's a Danish author, uh, which is also interesting that to, you know, see that uh, this story takes place in Denmark. That was one of the things I was wondering was, where exactly um, is this story taking place? Um, it's in Denmark, um, I'm assuming, since that's where uh, Hans Christian Andersen is from. Uh, but, yeah, really an even more bizarre story with not-so-great messaging. Um, if you fall under a spell uh, to live um, for, forever, um, don't kill the guy who might screw you over. Uh, just let him live after you've saved him, I guess. Um, really weird messaging. And I think it's interesting how, uh, you know, we have all these adaptations of this story. Um, going on Disney+, Plus, you know, looking up The Little Mermaid, uh, this wasn't even the first option on there. The first one was a promo for, for the remake coming up. And then there was The Little Mermaid 2. And then there was a, um, a, a live action, a live performance of it. Um, and then there's a, a TV show about The Little Mermaid that went on for like three seasons. Each season had, I think, like 12 episodes or something like that. Uh, so it went on for a little bit. Um, it seemed like it was a prequel to, to this to this film. Um, but there are some... I mean, people love The Little Mermaid, right? And it has spawned lots of different adaptations and lots of different interpretations of it. And I like how each one is very, very different but I really like this version and the way that they went about it, um, especially given the circumstances. Uh, like I said, this is a short segment. Uh, I am by myself, and I don't have a whole lot to say about this movie. Uh, hard to have a conversation with just with, with just me. But uh, I am really excited to talk about this next part uh, because The Little Mermaid is the start of Disney Renaissance. Um, so we're gonna talk about what is a Disney Renaissance um, and why it's significant this was the start and how that made getting this film... Uh, created very, very difficult um, and how if it didn't happen, uh, modern day cinema would not be the same. Um, cinema and just art in general would not be the same without this movie. So stick around for next segment. We're going to dive a whole lot deeper into that. So I'm sure that most of us have at least heard of the Disney Renaissance. Um, the Disney Renaissance is, um, was a span of, of one decade, essentially a span of 10 years, uh, 10 films, uh, that Disney made, starting with the Little Mermaid in 1989 and ending with Tarzan in 1999. Um, and this was really like the rebirth of, um, of Disney films and animation, uh, the 10 films are, uh, in order. Little Mermaid, The Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. Um, so these 10 films, I mean, just, if you caught those, uh, almost all of them, maybe minus the rescuers down under uh, that one just kind of just lumped in there because it fits the little mermaid has to be the start of it. Um, has to be included, uh, but rescuers down under was already kind of in production. And so that's definitely the odd one out. Um, it may not be as beloved as the other nine. Um, but I feel like the rest of those, I mean, even the hunch, even the hunchback, the rescuers down under everyone has heard of. Um, these are all massive films that are extremely beloved. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, these are referred to as the Disney Renaissance. Um, and the reason it's called that, uh, I mean, in modern day, Renaissance is kind of referred to as like rebirth, um, kind of like the 14th century re- Renaissance, where art and science was really thriving, right? And so now we kind of use Renaissance a little more lightly, and it, it was really a rebirth for Disney. Um, because in the, before The Little Mermaid, um, Disney was really, really struggling, particularly in the box office. So um, Walt Disney and his brother died um, in the 70s and 80s, and that uh, did really bad for their their film process. I mean, Walt Disney was this genius um, in a lot of aspects, but particularly with his, his characters and his storytelling. Um, and so Disney really, really tried um, to make a lot of different films. They tried animation. Um, and honestly, a lot of what they were doing was they were trying to move into live action, and basically everything flopped, um, maybe with the exception of The Fox and the Hound. Um, I love that movie. I, I know a lot of people love that movie, um, and that's really like the only one in this period from like the 70s to 89, this like 20-year-ish gap that really they made something that was pretty good. Um, everything else was not great, Um Definitely has its audiences, but you know, not not Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Mulan, uh, kind of, uh, kind of fame. Um, and the other thing is, like, they would try to force songs in there, but they weren't memorable. Nobody knew them. Um, they also made uh, the Black Cauldron. Um, is that a movie you've heard of? Maybe, probably not. Though uh, this was like this massive film that they put all of their chips into completely failed. Most people haven't even heard of it. It is awful. Um, and so one of the things that happened was in 1979, um, tenured animator, uh, John Don Bluth uh, left the company. He was like one of the head animators and he took 16 other animators with him. Um, and when they did that, they went and joined uh, another studio and they made the land before time, uh, which in 1979 and for the next 10 years would be the highest grossing animated film of all time um so disney really quickly realized that this wasn't um this wasn't like an animation problem or a technology problem this was a creative decision problem because these animators that were working for them went and created um an amazing animated film um one that clearly uh, the world loved at the time with it being the highest grossing film animated film holding that spot for 10 years. Um, and so like everyone who is still at Disney was really demoralized. And, uh, the other thing is, uh, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was running the motion picture division at Disney. Um, for whatever reason, uh, he wanted to focus the Disney as a company, wanted to focus more on, um, the, 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 the theme parks and everything. And so, uh, Katzenberg actually moved the animation studios offsite, um, into to California, I believe, like across the country, um, because he wanted to focus on live action because animation just was not working for them. Enter Michael Eisner, uh, who became the CEO of Disney in the mid 1980s. He's the one who's really credited with uh, kind of correcting ship um, after you know after after a few years, he kind of he, he kind of got Disney back on track. He also like oversaw the addition of more Disney parks and more locations, as well as like the Disney Cruise Lines. Um, and he also was kind of like, Hey, what if we go back to Disney's roots and create more musicals? Um, because at, at this point in time, a lot of people were realizing that, I mean, Broadway in particular was really booming at this point in time. Um, you know, you have Sondheim and all, I don't know, just all of these really iconic Broadway shows are coming out, um, in this kind of period of time. And people were particularly obsessed with Broadway. Um, And looking back on it, looking at Disney's roots, the things that were successful, um, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, things like that. Those were all um, musicals. And so he was kind of like, hey, what if we what if we try this again? Um, And they also kind of realized that they had a unique opportunity to tell stories um, that they can't tell in live action. For example, having a story take place primarily underwater with mermaids and talking crabs and fish and things like that. Um, and so they're like, well, what if we make that animated uh, and we can sure they, they can sing. It's already uh, a little bizarre enough to have all these things happening. So sure. Why not also add some music. And so with that, they had to find talent for that. Um, and they hired uh, Andrew Menken uh, and Menken uh, was a really great composer and songwriter. Uh, Particularly on the music side of things And he had worked with another guy um, On some other projects Named Howard Ashman Now Howard Ashman I think is One of the most unsung heroes Of The musical Genre Um, This guy was a genius Um, He was taken way too soon Um, And his story uh, is both Tragic and inspiring And he's in my opinion is the reason that the Disney Renaissance exists, um, and it should be given a lot more credit, uh, for its, um, for its creation. And one of the reasons I say this, uh, is I'm looking, um, at an article by WDW Magazine, uh, that kind of, it's kind of a clip notes of this whole, uh, thing, a whole Disney Renaissance period and all this stuff. And so I'll link that in the show notes below, but, uh, Howard Ashman is not given one mention throughout the entire thing. Um, they wanted to make it a musical uh, and Howard Ashman had to really fight for a lot of things. Uh, they decided, hey, let's just make a song about a crab singing. Um, and Howard Ashman came in was like, I have an idea and essentially created Under the Sea. Um, and they saw and they said, well, hold on, Sebastian isn't like Jamaican. And they said, well, okay, cast a Jamaican guy to play Sebastian. And they said, well, why? And he's like, because this song is amazing. And they're like, yeah, we like it, but it doesn't really fit with like the style. And I mentioned earlier, um, I didn't intend to do this, but I mentioned earlier how one of the great things about it was how uh, how much variety there was in in the music and, and style and it made things interesting. And, you know, things up top f- felt different than things underwater. And that's what Howard Ashton was trying to do Um and they they couldn't quite see it. And then he did it and they were like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. And that is one of, if not the most iconic song from the movie. Um, the other thing he had to really, really fight for was part of your world, which if under the sea, isn't the most iconic, it's definitely part of your world. Um, and the reason that Howard needed to fight for this was because they were like, it, it's going to take too long uh, we don't, it's unnecessary. It's not really driving the plot forward. And that's true. It's not. Um, you take part of your world out and you just kind of turn some of the song into dialogue. It would be about five seconds long and then we can move on and the movie could be faster. It'd be cheaper to animate um, cheaper to find uh, talent. Cause that's, I mean, that's the one that Jody Benson really had to like, you know, uh, show up for. And with that, it, it, it didn't develop. It didn't further the plot. And Howard Ashman came in and will said, well, um, it doesn't throw the plot, but it, it's vital to understanding this character um, because without part of your world, if you take that out, um, this movie is about a girl who has a crush and that is that is it. Um, but when you add part of your world, you realize that this is, a, this is a girl who has a lot more dreams and desires and a lot more power than just wanting uh, to gain the love of a man. She she wants to explore and um, and sure, there there's this really hot guy there as well, but there's a lot more to her character than just I have a crush, um, which at the time was a little, as I, as I said earlier, it's a little forward-thinking of Howard Ashman, um, and he was a very forward-thinking kind of guy, um, and he coined um, a term used to this day, um, and he kind of was looking back on other musicals, and he realized that within the first three songs, you need to have what is called the I Want song, um, and when talking about the I Want song, um A like Howard Ashman's the one that kind of I'm not wanna say he coined the term, but he definitely popularized it. Um and when talking about it, part of your world is always like the best example because part of your world literally says, I want to be where the people are. Um that's that's what she wants. Um every story ever told, um, you, you don't have a story unless you have a character that wants something. Um and with a musical, we have you have to find a clever way. Um with without a musical you have to find like a clever way to to explain that um and sometimes it can just be with dialogue or just with actions but with a musical you have a you know you have a unique opportunity to enter the headspace of a character through song um and so with musicals you need to have an I want song um and it is and it's present in every single musical you've ever seen in Hamilton it's my shot um wicked uh, the wizard and i um La La Land, um could be another day of Sun or also City of Stars. Um there are just so many Any example you can think of, you can you can find the I1 song, and it'll always be within the first three songs. Uh at least ninety percent of the time, it'll be one of the first three songs. Um and same thing with uh The Little Mermaid here. Uh we we learn that, that that's what she wants and it changes the story, it adds a lot more depth to the character. She's not super one-dimensional like every other Disney princess has been. And that was one of the, you know, revolutionary things about the Little Mermaid is before that every Disney princess um was waiting to be saved by this Knight in Shining Armor. Uh whereas Ariel was going after the Knight in Shining Armor. She was she she kind of took the story. It, the story was about her and she was the hero of the story, not this other guy. In um, that I don't know that that makes this movie a lot more interesting. Um, And I think that's one of the things that drew in so much audience appeal was it wasn't two-dimensional like the Black Cauldron and all these other things that Disney was trying to make. There was a lot of depth to the characters. Um, And I think that's one of the the biggest uh, things that you'll find throughout the Disney Renaissance is there's so much character uh, throughout these films. Look at Beauty and the Beast. Um, The Beast should be very one-dimensional kind of Character, but in that movie would have failed if they didn't give this guy so much um, character. Uh, I'm saying character a lot, but it, it's it's the only word for it. I mean, he he's complex. He's not just an evil person. He has he's a good person who did bad things because of that. He's paying the price for it, and that's really interesting and it's engaging and it's exciting. Um, and that's kind of what makes the Disney Renaissance what it is. This was a period of time where Disney completely changed the way that they looked at how they make animated films Um, and the technologies they use with animated films. Like I said, The Little Mermaid was the first movie um, to ever use CG animation and with that technology they were able to develop it and and their third film, uh, In the Renaissance Beauty and the Beast, they used that to create one of the most iconic scenes in all of cinema, the ballroom scene. Um, They were able to use CG technology to do that Um, and Beauty and the Beast ended up going on to be the first animated film ever to be nominated for a best picture award at the Oscars. Um, so there's just a lot of really, really cool stuff. And it was all made of very simple and I feel like now it's very obvious, uh, decisions and things like that, but it was, it was all very simple changes that this one guy, Howard Ashman, um, really had to fight for, um. And he does not get any of the credit for it. Uh, there's a really great documentary on Disney Plus called Howard um, about his story and everything. Highly recommend it. Um, in fact, uh, he, he did the arch for the Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Um, and this was you know early 90s. Uh, he uh, he contracted AIDS um, and got really sick from it. Didn't tell any of his co-workers coworkers um, about it. No one knew about it really, uh, and until it got really really bad. Um, and he was so vital to the creation of these films that they moved production to like closer to him, so they could still work with him uh, while he was in the hospital. Um, and he was finishing Aladdin. Um, with in his last week of life, that that's what he was doing was in the hospital room, working on, um, working on finishing the lyrics for Aladdin. Uh, put in yeah, it just great great story of you know Howard Ashman is just a great story. Um and very very unsung, very responsible for the the Renaissance. Um, But beyond that, you know, but Howard Ashman's legacy wasn't just those three films. It I think it's the entirety of the Renaissance because you get The Lion King immediately after that. Um, Pocahontas is another one that is iconic. Um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules uh, is this crazy adventure uh, musical. Like, I feel like Kirkus is one of the most ambitious they've ever done. Um, and you have kind of, you have Mulan, which I think kind of expanded on the Little Mermaid idea of, you know, this princess, quote unquote, um, you know, going out and fight and she's the hero of her own story. And Mulan kind of took that and literally made her a hero. Um, and then you have Tarzan, which kind of wrapped it all up, uh, which is kind of like, a more dumbed down version of the beauty and the beast. It's, it's very similar in that regard. Um, So even, even in like the height of Disney, um, they were still kind of copying and pasting things like they are right now. Um, But it's really interesting how this 10 year span took Disney from a company that was on the verge of failure, quite frankly, um, and blew them up to massive commercial success. um, And, to the point where they are now where they own basically everything um and they are a super giant in the film world um and so it's kind of obvious that now we are getting um all of these remakes of things right um so far five out of the 10 disney renaissance films uh have had live action remakes uh the Lion King of uh, the Little Mermaid is coming out uh, this week. Of course, uh, uh as it releases, uh, beating the beast, Aladdin, and, um, and Mulan. I always forget Mulan because that movie wasn't great. Um, it made a lot of really bad decisions, but that's a story. That's, that's a, that's a podcast for another time. So they made five out of the 10, um, What's left is uh, Tarzan, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas, Hercules, and uh, the Rescuers down under. Uh, will we get a live action remake for the Rescuers down under? I don't think so, but I can definitely see the other four um, coming in the not-so-distant future. Um, I've heard that Hunchback of Notre Dame is actually be in like production is in the process of being made uh, very, very slowly. Obviously it's not being made right now because of the WGA writer strike, which, um, is just, it's ridiculous that these massive studios, um, aren't giving uh, credit and aren't allowing, um, aren't properly supporting the writers who are giving them all of the money, um, in the world, literally, especially in Disney's case. Um, and so, I kind of, wanted. I'm um, just looking at you know the Disney Renaissance and looking at how we're remaking all these films. Um, Disney obviously doesn't need another renaissance. Um, I mean, right now we're in what is referred to as the stream era of Disney. There's different eras um, throughout Disney history. Apparently, um, you can read more about this article. Um, right now, we're in what is being referred to as the stream era of Disney, um, and. It's interesting how they are taking these old films and they're adapting them. These old they're taking these old films that meant so much to them, right? They have so much value to the history of Disney and to the success of Disney. And the fact that they're taking those and trying to repurpose them and reuse them and kind of regain all of that. I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like they're they're trying to take something that saved them and they're kind of using they don't need to be saved right now they're doing just fine um and they're using it just to gain a little extra cash um and i was kind of wondering like is that a good thing or is that a bad thing um and honestly i think the bad aspects of it are very obvious um number one i don't think anyone has watched any of the five remakes that have come out and i've said these are so much better than the first film or the original film um I don't think there's really anyone who said anything close to that. Um, I mean, the Lion King is cool to look at how, you know, the technology involved with the Lion King is really cool. Um, I will say that one somewhat warranted. Um, But, I mean, you have, like, Robin Williams as the genie, and you you try to recreate him with Will Smith, and I think they did a good job at not trying to mimic uh, Robin Williams. um, But at the same time, just... Just leave this perfect character, this iconic character, alone, right? Um, so there's a lot of bad that is very obvious and is very on the surface of things. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about with, you know, some of the good that's coming from it though as well, particularly with the Little Mermaid, um, is it's reintroducing the story to a modern audience. And I was kind of alluding to this at the end of uh, last segment. There's some things in this version, like I said, that from a certain perspective. Um, can be taken really out of context and not very well. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if this movie got canceled uh, for some of the messaging about um, h- how girls should act. Um, even though that's not at all what the movie is trying to say, and it's it's a small aspect um, from it, of the villain of the story. Uh, and again, it's from a very certain point of view. Uh, you have to be really like trying to find something wrong with it to kind of uh, to see it. A and then B to find something wrong with it um but i think one of the things it does it's it's it reintroduces the story to modern audiences and that's important for a few reasons and i think the little mermaid is the only one so far that i think has really shown this um especially with the casting of hallie bailey um you know adding more representation uh to this line disney princesses we didn't get that until the princess and the frog um and so a lot of kids, a lot of little girls who love Disney princesses, um, may not have, may have never seen, you know, them, themselves that way growing up, uh, I'm able to, you know, pretend that they're the Disney princess because they, none of them look like them. Um, and so having like Hallie Bailey cast, um, is, is huge. Um, and that's it, it, it. I think that's a good thing, um, that we're reintroducing it to modern audiences, um, with Star Wars, you know, fans are massively divided. You know, there's the original, which is the best? Original trilogy, prequels, the sequels. Um, and I think the thing that people forget, and myself included with with this in particular, is like Star Wars was made for kids, you No, know, regardless of when it came out. The original trilogy was, was made for kids. The prequels were made for those kids. The sequel trilogy was made for those kids. Um, and all of those trilogies took place within different generations. And so people have vastly different opinions on them. And they say, well, it ruins star Wars. Um, some of the greatest star Wars stories ever told are within the clone wars and star Wars rebels, both of which are animated shows geared toward children. Um, and so I feel like a lot of people are really quick to judge and say, you're ruining uh, this thing that I love, but they're forgetting that it's not meant for them. Uh, these remakes, Yes, are you know, realistically, um, Disney's using it to to make a as as a quick cash grab. Um, But if we are going to try to find a silver lining, I think it's very um, easy to see that there is good that's coming from this with the modern audiences that this is being made for. Um, Hopefully, they don't mess with the Little Mermaid too much. Hopefully, they do you know kind of leave it. They they honor the source material at the very least. I think. I think if they do that, uh, they'll be fine. Um, Even if it's not, you know, as good as the original or if even if it's not very good at all, um, I think they can at least honor the original. uh, I think a lot of good can come from it. Um, And also some of these remakes is kind of an afterthought, a side note, but uh, there's also new technology that's being developed and that's able to be used. Particularly with the Lion King, Um, Disney had a really unique opportunity with that movie and I'm really glad they took it. Um, to try, you know, to use all this new uh, CG technology and using real world cameras to create plates and to put these CG animated characters into them. Um, really, really cool technology that was used for the Lion King. Um, and I mean, that's what the Renaissance was all about. what That's part of what the Renaissance was all about was, you know, taking new technology um, and using that to tell stories that couldn't be told without that technology and that couldn't be told in any other medium. Um, and so that is one good. That's another thing that I I do really appreciate about one of the things that they can be doing with these movies. Um, are they doing it with all of them? No, not really. But um, it is a really cool chance um, to experiment with new technology um, at a very low risk because the little mermaid is going to be successful because it's the little mermaid. Um, and so children are going to be excited about it. Adults who love the little mermaid are going to be excited about it. This is a very, these are very low risk films. And so I really hope they take more opportunities like with the lion king to advance technology, or they take opportunities to do what they're doing with the little mermaid and introduce it to a new audience. Um, modernize it a little bit, um, kind of pull Hamilton and tell, you know, the, the, the quote, the slogan behind, you know, Hamilton is America then told by America now. Um, and yes, we have so many iterations, of little mermaid, uh, but each of them are reintroduced and the changes that are made are made to help modern audiences and to tell a more modern story. Um, and so I think if they can, I, they can, I'm totally okay with them, you know, repurposing these Renaissance films, as long as they're doing one or preferably both of those two things, uh, using it to develop new technologies and using it to modernize the story and to uh, just, yeah, to modernize the story. That's what I'll go with. Um, Last thing, uh, which should come next, Uh, we have five more to go from. I would really like to see a Hercules movie. I think that would be so cool. Um, That's definitely one of the, in terms of scale, I think is probably the biggest Disney Renaissance film. Um, Just lots of different, Locations, um, lots of action and adventure, and you know, lot, lots of things going on there. Tarzan, although, uh, is like one of my personal favorites. Um, would also really like to see live. A- I don't know if I'd like to see live action Tarzan. That one could be interesting. I, uh, yeah, yeah, live action Tarzan would be bizarre, I think. But I think Hercules could be really, really cool. Probably because I don't have as much of an attachment to it. I just think the idea is really cool. Um, so. I'm going to end things there. Uh, I think I've talked enough and nerded out enough about the Disney Renaissance because um, I think that the Disney Renaissance is is responsible for what we have. Um, again, like I said, with modernizing uh, these stories for f- modernizing these stories for the modern audience and also developing technology, I think that's what Disney does best um, as as a whole. If we're looking at everything, um, they're you know introducing characters and things that are more representative. Um, And they're telling stories that matter most sometimes. uh, They definitely can tell stories that matter. um, And they're developing so many new technologies and investing in so many films and things that are creating new technologies, even though a lot of them on the surface are the exact same movie we've seen a hundred times. The thing that I keep thinking, I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, with the new Mission Impossible, all those movies are basically the same. uh, But Tom Cruise was using... Their low risk, um, the low risk in massive commercial success to test new technologies that he could then use for Top Gun Maverick, which is objectively like one of the best films ever made, if, if we're being honest. Um, definitely within the top 100, I would say. Um, and so I, that's something I've, I've been thinking about a lot uh, with a lot of the new films that are coming out, um, you know, Marvel films and things like that, that are just consistently the same. Uh, and the, not a whole lot of new stuff going on with it. Um, while we're losing a lot in terms of story and things like that, um, as long as there's something coming out of it with these these low-risk films, um, as long as we're taking smaller risks to develop new technologies, discover new, act, new, new talent, I'll say, because it doesn't have to necessarily be just actors, um, as long as we're taking some risks with these low-risk IPs, um, I'm okay with it And I'm happy Uh, You've been listening To The Popcorn Hangover My name is Alex And we've been discussing 1989's The Little Mermaid What were your thoughts On The Little Mermaid Let us know On all of the things Instagram TikTok Patreon.com Slash The Popcorn Hangover And also give us Your reviews Of the new uh, uh, 2023 Little Mermaid Uh, Really curious to see what your thoughts are. I know I will be going to see it at some point, maybe not this weekend, but at some point during its theatrical release. Next week, uh, we're gonna stick with the animated realm. Um, You know, we talked a lot this week about how uh, the Disney Renaissance kind of changed the game for animation and film in general. Uh, This movie we're gonna talk about next week did the exact same thing, um, but particularly for animation. And we even mentioned it in today's episode. So, So yeah. That's all I've got for you. We'll talk to you next time.